I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the World Health Organization has officially recognized workplace burnout and warns of the serious consequences. We can get this toxic experience at work that changes our body chemistry that makes us ill. And there are catastrophic impacts from that. Just pre-pandemic, in one year alone, overwork was responsible for 2.8 million deaths. Author Jennifer Moss breaks down the research and discusses why this conversation is so prevalent right now. And later, the great resignation, why workers aren't just quitting, but changing their careers entirely. We'll hear firsthand. When I got out of bed, it's like I wasn't excited. You know, I wasn't like, seize the day. It was more like, yikes. I can't, I only have to do two more days until the weekend, you know, like, and, and that's a very draining place to be. Workplace burnout and the great resignation, all ahead on Life Examined. More and more, health organizations and employers are coming to recognize that workplace burnout is a real damaging problem. High levels of exhaustion, negativism, and emotional disconnection from the job are some of the leading indicators. And more disturbing is that new data shows that in a post-pandemic world, when many are enjoying working from home, overwork, stress, and exhaustion have increased. So why are so many of us feeling burned out? And how does this term differ from the normal feeling of workplace wariness? In other words, how defined and widespread is this issue? In her latest book called The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It, Jennifer Moss says employers and organizations need to entirely rethink their approach to wellness and that Band-Aid solutions like taking time off, yoga, or resilience exercises won't help. So do employers need to hit the pause button and reevaluate what success looks like? Should employees empower themselves to be healthier and happier at work? Joining me now to talk about this trending and urgent problem is burnout expert and author Jennifer Moss. Welcome to Life Examined. I'm looking forward to our conversation. How do we begin to define burnout? Um, I feel like there's tentacles that go off in many different directions, but you've really looked at this, written about it. Um, Tell us a little bit about how we can think about that term. You're exactly right in that the the tentacles piece, and I think a lot of that just has to do that we've sort of misdiagnosed what burnout has been for a long time. We've ill-defined it. Um, But researchers, Dr. Christina Maslach, Dr. Michael Leiter, and Susan Jackson, they've been working on this for, you know, several decades, um, I think maybe four decades now, and they've come to really be pushing for a more uh, succinct definition. And so in 2019, which is, you know, from their, you know, encouragement and help, the World Health Organization identified burnout as an occupational phenomenon. It's workplace stress left unmanaged. It shows up in these big three signs of, you know, high levels of exhaustion, uh, emotional distance from one's job, and higher levels of negative negativism or cynicism in our work. Uh, but that moment that it identified and the WHO came out with this milestone sort of announcement and, and they had included it in their international classifica- uh, classification of diseases, that helped a lot of us in this space bring it back to the fact that it is an organizational problem to solve, that it isn't just something that can be remedied with self-care. Yeah. Why do you think that those researchers thought that this would even be an important thing to study? Well, we can go, you know, all the way back to when burnout was first identified, you know, in the 70s. And it really was defined as caregiver syndrome at the time because people that were working in mental uh, in healthcare, but specifically they were dealing within a mental health clinic for people with addiction, they were finding that not only were they, you know, seeing these people coming in with their own, you know, types of burnout from, from addiction, what we also saw was that the people that were servicing and helping them and caring for them and their jobs were also burning out and showing very similar symptoms. And so this idea of those two things merging really came into to play. And uh, as we started to study it more, it moved from caregiver syndrome to, to burnout. And we found that it wasn't just in the healthcare field, but prevalent in every field. Uh, and, and really it is just that we 
you know, can get this toxic experience at work that changes our body chemistry that makes us ill. And there are catastrophic effects, catastrophic impacts from that. I mean, just pre-pandemic in one year alone, overwork was responsible for 2.8 million deaths. You know, that is something that we, we need to be paying more attention to, that it isn't just, you know, I'm not feeling really great or happy at work or disengaged or tired. There are real effects from us not really paying attention to this problem. Yeah. And I want to get into all of that in just a minute, but but kind of staying with the history for a second here, it's interesting how we began to see this in caregivers. And I think again about the pandemic, the incredible stories we were hearing about physicians and nurses, there is something very specific in that field that uh, burnout is prevalent. It is. We see it across any sort of caregiver role and anyone that's, you know, hugely driven by the care of their stakeholder. That's why we see this in teachers as well. But in healthcare, it's particularly challenging because we also, you know, add on to that, that empathy or compassion fatigue. Uh, We also know that we're in this life or death situation. So how can we, you know, leave the work? It literally is, you know, the difference between saving someone's life or or not saving someone's life. So there's that added pressure that our roles are so, you know, consequential to to the communities we serve. So all of that is, is adds just this increased dimension. And then what we also found through the research is that certain personalities are really driven towards these types of roles. So people that are high performing, highly driven, perfectionists, you know, those with perfectionist concerns are highly, you know, attracted to this type of work. So then it becomes a recipe for burnout um, across the board. Talk to me a little bit about how how burnout differs from just malaise, a general unhappiness, the kind of, I'm not sure I'm suited for this kind of work, or I don't love all my colleagues. Where do we see the differential there? Yes, I love, you know, that uh, word malaise or, Hmm. you know, Adam Grant really popularized the term languishing, which has been around for a long time. But I think, you know, there's a difference between Uh, just tiredness or feeling tired of work or, you know, disengaged because we've been on Zoom meetings for too long. You know, some of these things are just, you know, obviously adding to our sense of sort of mental distance from our work. Being so connected and on can just make us want to not be on so much. But it's when it starts to get to this point where, you know, we're, we're exhausted, which makes sense in a pandemic, but then you add in things like you stop feeling like what you're doing has meaning or value, or you're not connected to the role anymore. I mean, I heard from so many teachers that would say, you know, that they felt levels of, of demoralization, you know, use those kinds of terms because they didn't feel that what they were doing was effective. And over time that can really decrease the reason why you are inspired to be at work or all the motivation that you need to be at work. Uh, the the big red flag and what was interesting because we did some you know some novel research inside of the pandemic and I was fortunate to work with Dr. Maslock and Dr. Michael Leiter on this and what Dr. Leiter was saying when he looked at the data he said you know I expect people to be burned out in that from the exhaustion piece I expect people to feel just really tired. I get that, but, and maybe disengaged, but the cynicism was really difficult to see people's level of hopelessness. You know, they just felt like they, this was always going to be the way it was. And this was a permanent state that they were going to feel. They have no control over the outcomes of their day. That's when we start to say, okay, we're really, you know, getting into trouble territory here. And I think that's, I think that's really where we determine how far along we are sort of on that pathway to hitting the wall. Yeah, yeah. I'm just so struck by by what you said there about this idea of cynicism, this notion of, of teachers, of course, who we think doing the most important work, feeling it's pointless. Um, these are terms that sound, they sound depressive, right? As if somebody's entering a whole different state of mind and how they see their work, how they see themselves, how they see their future. I mean, it's, it's very powerful the way you're describing it. It, it was alarming, I guess, what all of us said, because there was uh, four of us on this project and Dr. David Whiteside, who's an or- organizational behavioral PhD, 
all four of us, I guess that's shocking, not surprising, looking at the data and just seeing people describing in their own words the sense of complete hopelessness. Mm. And that is what was, I think, the most scary for us is when you start to see all of these pieces of the puzzle coming together and knowing that you're still, you know, when we were looking at the data, it was the between the second and the third wave. So you can imagine what people are feeling at this point after so many months of feeling this way that, you know, it until you get to this point of sort of radical acceptance that this is how it's going to be, people are just going to continually to be future focused, hoping that this will be over and really just in a state of survival mode instead of actually living, which is what we need to start thinking about. How is this sustainable? Yeah. You talked a little bit about physical symptoms as well, not just kind of uh, emotional or intellectual. Talk about what happens to the body when you're experiencing burnout. Well, we can experience symptoms of depression, of anxiety, of post-traumatic stress disorder. Our body starts to become, um, it becomes very difficult for us to get moving in the morning or motivated. Um, Mm -hmm. We start to feel irritable. We become more withdrawn. We are frustrated with other people more easily and find that our emotional state is really volatile. So things sort of set us off faster. We also can experience symptoms of of brain fog just from being in this state of chronic stress for so long. What happens is we start having trouble finding our words. We find that um, small problems are huge. So it's difficult for us to solve those smaller problems. We, um, you know, these tasks that we're doing every day, especially for, you know, for those folks that are have been juggling for so long, that work-life, you know, integration, we feel like we can't do those simple tasks that we used to do much easier before. And then all of that just leads to this internal dialogue that's really unhealthy, like, you're why are you know you not being able to do this what's wrong with you why are you so lazy you know and all this productivity shaming that we've we had early on in the pandemic about all the time that we have on our hands to be able to do all these things i mean was really difficult for people that are solutions based and like to hit their personal goals which is most of us Uh, so all of these pain points have just made us more mentally physically emotionally tired Productivity shaming is a term I've never heard, but but that seems to be pretty resonant in this conversation. Can you say a bit more about that? It was, we saw this a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think because we saw this as an acute situation, but it was like, oh, you know, you're working from home. You should be able to Marie Kondo your whole house, Uh, or maybe you can bake bread from a starter kit, or maybe you should pick up a new language and, you know, learn some new skill. And what should you do with this, this time you have on your hands? And yet, when you look at the data, we were working 30% more to hit our pre-COVID goals. In the US and Canada and Europe, we were working three to four more hours per day. We were uh, juggling the demands of parenting. Women disproportionately took on 15 to 20 more hours of unpaid labor in the last you know, 20 months. So we f- we feel as these people like, oh, well, now we have time to, you know, to not travel or not commute or, but we were placed at time a hundred in other parts of our life that we maybe weren't spending as much time on before. So all of that sort of mindset adds to those, you know, thoughts, those negative thoughts that we aren't achieving enough, or we're not hitting, you know, those goals, we're not doing extra, which then makes us feel more mentally unwell and debilitated and burned out. Jennifer, how much of this is a very American phenomenon that we're talking about. Um, You know, we hear so many stories of the American work ethic, um, the insane hours, the business policies, the short vacations. Do you find that this is very localized within our country or, or it's extending out beyond? It's it's funny in the book, I actually did the sort of history and uh, evolution of burnout. And long before burnout was a, a definition, it was sort of called this, this type of burnout was called Americanitis. Huh. Um, and which I think is really interesting. But this was, I mean, we're talking, you know, 18th century here. Uh, this was a long time ago or late, you know, 1800s. 
But what we found was um, that it isn't something that is specific to North America or Americans. Uh, we're seeing for sure in you know, Japan, Asian countries, and China as well. It's a really huge problem. Kiroshi is actually a term that Japan has named because there's so much death by overwork. Too many people are working such long hours that it is actually killing them. You know, China right now in their tech sector has this sort of my, uh, this way of describing the amount of hours that people should be working and and they can be, you know, basically six days a week, nine hours a day mm. is, the, is the ideal amount of time, uh, which is, completely unsustainable so it's not you know we're not just experiencing it here it's spread but you do see certain places where it's not as prevalent i mean you see this in the netherlands there's a lot more restrictions even in france they have a lot of again those boundaries it's a law uh, that you cannot email over a certain amount of, um, like after a certain hours within a workplace. So they actually have it baked into policy and government policy to protect their people. You know, we, there's certain parts of the world where they've done a really good job of being um, committing to solving for it, but it's um, it still is an epidemic that we see in all parts of the world right now. Let me bring up something that's kind of maybe a little bit more amorphous and hard to track down in nature. But uh, as part of this millennial generation, barely at the cusp, I'm getting old here, but but there's this notion that um, our job should be so profoundly fulfilling in every dimension and it should be inspiring all day long and that we should love to do it. And, and it's this kind of myth that's been perpetuated that clearly I think any of us can look at that rationally and say it's probably impossible. But what I'm trying to get to is this idea of, uh, of a certain set of expectations we have at work or what we think work should be and that the reality is that that will probably never quite be the case. Mm -hmm. How do we pair this with the idea of burnout and this millennial notion of work? Is that something you've thought about much? Yes, I do a lot of research in uh, Gen Zs and millennials and just the fact that they are the most burned out generation there's lots of reasons for that but when you you know ask specifically about our ideals around work we we all sort of have this myth i mean everyone has heard the old saying that you know do what you love you never work a day in your yep, life of course yep. we we've all felt that desire and i think we all have to reconcile with that but i do think that you know different generations have already been told that work is hard and it, that is transactional and you don't need to have a relationship with your boss and you know then you basically live for the weekends and your time off and work is just to make money but that has slowly changed and i think it's a dynamic between both employer and employee and and what is expected of their employees um, you know, what leaders are expecting from their people has changed and there's more nuances to that. And we we expect our employees to be motivated because we have started to measure for engagement and, you know, and, and job satisfaction and employee experience. So there has been a, a, an employer demand. And then there's also employees who are saying, I don't want that transactional relationship with my, you know, with my employer because I can make money in different ways. I can, you know, become a startup founder, I can freelance, I can do other things. And so they have rightful expectations for their employers to behave differently. Um, and all of that is triggered, I think, in a, um, an evolution in the workplace where both are needing different things from each other and it becomes a little bit more complex at that point um, but when i you know when i do talk to to young people entering the workforce which i just had a conversation with a, a group the other day i said it's really important for us to understand that in those first few years of work 
there's no way around the fact that you know you're going to have less agency because you're just developing a reputation and you probably won't be in a leadership role where you get to make some of those decisions you you know if you're working virtually there's a risk of you not getting as much time with your boss or FaceTime, especially if some people are in the office and you're virtual um, we're also going to have to deal with the fact that in a lot of organizations there's still this hazing that happens within them to expect our young people to work 60 70 80 hours a week and answer emails at 1 a.m because that's what they went through so they expect you to go through that too so we when we do choose which field we want to get into and which ones have a culture of overwork that's something for us to understand because systems and and legacy have been around for a long time and we're starting to see changes but the reality is is there's still a lot of work to be done and the more that we're aware i think as a young person going into these companies um, about what our likelihood of having that kind of agency and choice will be around our work experience um, if you make choices to go into a certain field you're going to deal with those issues mm. um, and that's important to be aware of the more awareness and knowledge we have around that the more likely we'll enjoy our jobs so I don't know if this is being overly simplistic here. What I'm hearing, though, is that maybe it has less to do with the expectations we had of out of work and more with a systemic problem of the way that work has been designed and the expectation from the side of the employer. Is that is that right? Absolutely. The book really focuses in on the organizational's role and leader's role and the fact that, you know, leaders are exhausted too. They have their own pressures and they're dealing with this these this legacy of overwork that they probably, sure. you know, want to change as well. But it is really at that institutional level and that, you know, and that is what's really paradigm shifting right now is that employees are choosing to opt out of that and that's why we see this mass resignation you know it's it's a trending topic right now but mm -hmm. it's pretty meaningful and substantial if you look at 41 to 45 percent of the workforce globally depending on what you know what research you're looking at are are planning to leave their job in the next three months and many of them are looking at leaving their careers entirely it it makes it a bottom line issue for employers they are now responsible for retaining the people that they spend a lot of money attracting and hiring and training so that is uh it it's an issue that now is going to hit revenue and shareholder value and that changes things so the employees have a lot more control here and they are saying i don't want this i don't want to live in this system anymore mm. Hold on, though. Did you say 40 to 45 percent of workers are considering like leaving their job or getting into a new career? It's a major event that's happening. And this is across data that's coming, you know, from a Microsoft survey, 30,000 people, uh, sev several Canadian surveys that looked at their workforce. We have more global data that's come in from Deloitte and McKinsey looking at the fact that this is a major problem and the fact that people aren't just looking at leaving their jobs and you know moving to another company within their industry they're looking at leaving their careers like i mean we see mass exodus of nurses mass exodus of teachers and the implication of that is our communities downstream are going to be hugely impacted uh, for example even in you know in canada where i live there was one hospital the other day that couldn't open because they didn't have enough nurses. You see this across the U.S. as well, um, just complete, you know, folding down of the infrastructure that keeps our cities and our communities alive. From a macroeconomic standpoint, this is significant. And so um, corporate and government and all of these other, you know, agencies need to come together and figure out how to stop that flow of people out of their job and make it so that they can come back to work in a healthy way. Um, just one thing to add to that, when you look at the Microsoft survey, they said that only 4% were leaving because of compensation. So it used to be across all the data that pay was number one reason why someone left a job. And now it's how I was treated in the pandemic or that my employer cares about my mental health at work. So this is, this is fascinating and 
I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you think the tipping point was in the pandemic or what, what were the, the central issues that led us up to this point? I mean, on some level, right, a, a pandemic is on so, it can be an existential crisis. We, had, we saw a shift in work. We saw um, a, a tremendous amount of burden being put on workers. We also heard workers say, I love being at home now. My life is much more rich than it was. What do you think has gone into this kind of, as you said, this trending hashtag, you know, great resignation? What are your thoughts? So I think you name some of the biggest, which is, you know, which I think is the, the highlight of um, of this last year, or the last 20 months has just been that there's been a, a sort of an existential realization. We've faced our own mortality for the first time, really, many of us. And we have seen people in our lives pass away who have been sick and we're grieving our old life. We've been forced to adjust and we've developed this sort of emotional flexibility inside of that and this resiliency that shows that we can handle change. Most people don't actually jump, you know, you know, head first into a decision um, like this, like completely changing our jobs or, you know, or, you know, deciding that we can't go back into the office any longer. You, you do that because our patterns have changed and our intentions in our lives have been questioned. We aren't just, you know, go, we can't just kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's all changed. And when everything sort of is up for grabs or and you've been forced into a situation and you realize, hey, these are the things I really like. I, I don't want to commute for two hours. But before you never thought you had a choice. Now you realize you have a choice. There's a frame of reference now that you can rely on. And because there's power in numbers and so many other people are going through this collectively and making these decisions collectively, you feel more supported in those decisions. It's um, kind of a contagion effect, a network effect. Christakis and Fowler came up with this research that I've always been fascinated by this idea of social contagions, you know, and divorce is contagious, loneliness is contagious, you know, happiness is contagious. And what we've re come to realize is so is leaving our jobs, <laughs> you know, that we feel a lot more supported in that decision because we've come to realize that there are so many worse things. Um, and we aren't going to accept that being at work in an unhealthy way has any value anymore to our lives. And I think that that is a big part of it, um, along with the workload and exhaustion piece and, you know, feeling like uh, we're constantly without agency, that we've had to relearn and learn new technology. And, you know, all of that stuff are pieces of the puzzle. But from a macro standpoint, I really think it is just this this moment in time um, where we've all collectively gone through trauma and now we're recovering from it. What do you think that workplaces need to do to start retaining their workers? I mean, interesting, you said only three or 4% were considering leaving because of salary. So we can almost move money off the table a little bit. But what else do you think people are asking for? People are asking for agency a choice in where, how, when they work, uh, less monitoring and micromanaging. Mm. They want to be able to feel like they have uh, openness to talk about mental health at work and that they're not stigmatized. Uh, we need to manage for workload too. That means stepping back and really addressing how we're going to continue working within these constraints of a global pandemic. Uh, there's a macro stressor that's happening every single day. It's like a tornado warning going off every minute of the day. And either we become normalized to it, which is maladaptive when it gets to the point where, you know, we're, we're normalizing it like someone would in a traumatic situation in a war zone. Instead, we need to look at this as potentially endemic. So what are we going to do inside of our workplaces as leaders to get that, you know, to get that it's not business as usual, to look at what our success metrics are? Is it innovate or die? Is it growth at all costs? Or is it how do I make sure that I cannot become obsolete because every single one of my employers is going to get to the point of burnout and not be able to show up for work in six months from now? 
So it's really a, a pause moment um, like we've never had before and redefining what success looks like in our organizations and making sure that the main goal is leading with human-centered leadership. Do you think there's a scenario in which everybody can get everything they want, right? Like workers can have a four-day work week and businesses can still be profitable. Um, because I'm just wondering, I mean, this stuff all sounds really good theoretically, but can you envision like a real practical world where things feel balanced? So there is a lot of really great research and data around, you know, the 35 hour work week sure. and just how we can be more efficient if we're working towards goals and hours. But I also am realistic about the fact that this doesn't always work in every sort of environment. We also are taking research where we're analyzing groups that have a lot of, you know, um, that are homogenous. And so there's not the same sort of issues that you're dealing with uh, from a you know policy standpoint or even just culturally. You know, we have a lot of other pressures like systemic discrimination and some of these major problems when it comes to, you know, fairness and 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 all of that leads to burnout too. So it's easy to say that in this one culture where that works. Um, but I have seen you know, examples of it really going well, even inside of, you know, North America and in places where there's those other factors. Um, I do think, though, that we have swung the pendulum in really, you know, far in one direction, which we need to kind of get it back to the middle. And, and I do think that there are some people right now who have spent 20 months or, you know, whatever, working remote and finding that they really like this sort of space, etc. But we are not always good at identifying what we need all the time. And there has been this real increase in loneliness and isolation, which is not good for humanity. And I think employees still need to understand that maybe this isn't purely transactional. I show up to work, I get paid and that's it. That there is a level of compromise. And when you really look at the research, there's been some really interesting research come out right lately about the hybrid model and the idea that it adds this flexibility, which is really great, but there's also opportunities to meet with people and look at each other in the eyes. And, you know, our genetic imprint of mirror neurons is part of what it makes us human beings that has been atrophying. Getting, you know, to spend time with people face to face is still healthy. So I think that meeting in the middle is going to be where we have our healthiest state of, of being inside of this future of work. Work. And employees, I think, need to also compromise and leaders need to compromise, too. And then we meet in the middle somewhere that's, you know, the ideal. And what we're seeing right now is that there is this sort of push and pull with people saying, I kind of want it all. And and I always live by this rule that you can have anything and not everything, you know, and so it's about choices that we make as employees and as employers to feel like we are doing our best to come somewhere in a place that's sustainable. And I think what's so important here is this idea of not necessarily just changing policies, but changing culture. Because I don't know if this is true, but there were these studies that came out, for example, when you looked at businesses that had open vacation policies, right? You can take off as much time as you want as long as you want throughout the year, people appear to be actually taking less time off than if they had four weeks, perhaps because it was the expectations of their employer or they would look down upon, right? So there has to be something else that changes within these organizations too, expectations, demands of productivity, things like that, no? Absolutely. I love that you cited that research. I included it in the chapter, Good Intentions Gone Bad. And I think, you know, we we as employers or leaders have these really good intentions. And I know we think that's a great declaration to become, you know, an, a company that has unlimited, you know, pay time off. But when we don't have the culture that supports you actually taking time off, or if you have to have this, you know, ADP did this great research around, um, uh, vacation debt when you have to put 17 hours in before you go to work and about 14 hours after i think that's you know that's what they've found out 
that you have to put in all this debt to take time off, then people are going to be less likely to take time off because it isn't actually rejuvenating or helping people to come back in a healthy way. We've also seen, you know, a lot of employers say, I'm giving my burned out employees a week off. I think that's a huge misstatement. And a, a problem is that you're you're creating a Band-Aid solution for something that needs to be fixed upstream. You have to stop burning your employees out in the first place to have to force to give them a week off because all you're going to be doing is giving your burned out employees weeks off to solve for their burnout. A lot of what needs to happen, you're right, from the culture standpoint, is that we need to create a permission-based sort of uh, environment where leaders are modeling the behavior, where we live by the rules um, that we set around mental health and well-being, that it isn't just lip service. You know, I have this story that I share in the book about this play agency that I worked at and they had this games room um, and it looked like it was so much fun. But every time I walked by it, I noticed no one was ever using, you know, the ping pong table or no one was ever playing in there, stopping and reading and taking time to enjoy it. It was just, it was like this reminder that we never had time to stop. And so I think a lot of what we need to do is go back and think, how do we create this so we feel it in the walls? How does it become a contagion effect or a network effect inside of our organizations where everyone just sort of lives by this etiquette of mental health being important? And uh, and we're still, again, a long way off from that really happening. And if we don't do that, it's not going to change. Is there anything for those that are stuck in what they feel is a is a burnout situation that they can do to help themselves, whether it's small things, whether it's big things? Do you do you off, offer any tips to us? You know, I I do realize and recognize that when I talk about the solution for preventing burnout, you know, structurally, organizationally, that it isn't just leaders and companies and you know policies that are going to make it all work. They have to put in their time, but we also are responsible for our own life satisfaction and our own psychological fitness that needs to happen in our own personal lives anyways. So, you know, embedding that in how we think at work is also critical to us being able to actually get benefit from any of those well-being strategies that are put in front of us. Um, and that means, again, modeling the behavior, even as a coworker, even if you're an individual contributor, but, you know, taking time inside your calendar and creating space for downtime, making sure that you, you know, are taking 10 minutes after sitting for an hour to um, get up and move around. We have increased our sedentary you know, lifestyle exponentially. We're sitting four to seven more hours per day right now, which is a real problem. You know, There's a lot of ways that we can restructure how we meet with people, how we connect with people. Uh, we need to be ensuring that we aren't completely removing from the things that make us happy from our lives. It's easy you know, to feel like there's no time for friendships right now, but we actually need them more than ever. Maybe that doesn't mean we have a quantity of friendships. We don't have a whole bunch of people we're trying to manage right now, but one person that gives us what positive psychologists call an effortless state of belonging. We need to keep cultivating and nurturing those friendships right now. We need our social support, uh, you know, more than ever. And we do need to be able to, you know, have time for self-care. And that is uh, even, you know, it's not going to solve for burnout <laughs> entirely, but we will be able to create a little bit of buffer from the effects of, you know, workplace stressors. And that's how we can contribute to, to the solution versus the problem. I've been speaking with Jennifer Moss. She's the author of The Burnout Epidemic, The Rise of Chronic Stress and How We Can Fix It. Jennifer, I, I feel like this, this conversation is happening at a really important time all around this country. So I, I appreciate the research and, and the time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Still to come, the great resignation. What's behind so many people just leaving their jobs, oftentimes with no future plans at all? We'll get a firsthand account. That's coming up on Life Examined after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. As we just heard, the data around burnout is alarming. We're working on average 30% more. Globally, between 40 and 45% of employees are not just planning to leave their jobs, but to switch careers entirely. One such person who experienced all of this is Sebastian Cruz. Cruz is a young 20-something living on the East Coast. After graduating from a top college, he landed a dream job in financial services. The pay was great, but the hours were grueling. After two years of working 80-hour weeks, he knew something had to give. And he joins us now to talk more about his experiences. Sebastian Cruz, welcome to KCRW. No problem, John. Thanks for having me. We're talking about burnout this week and about the realities of, of a workplace and why it just hasn't worked for so many people. And I, and I want to just hear your story about you coming out of a good school on the East Coast and um, f- dreaming about where your life would go, where it would take you. So take us back to being 21, 22 and thinking about how you wanted to spend your time, your employer, um, and, and take it away from there. What was life like for you? I guess I'll start at the end of my senior year. Um, you know, as most college kids around that time, some are in diff- everyone's in a different place, you know, in terms of their dreams, ambitions, what they want to do with their career. But ultimately, everyone wants one thing. They want to have a job after they graduate. That's, it's a constant point of obsession. So I applied to a variety of financial services institutions. And a couple months after I graduated, I I got an offer to work at a hedge fund in the New England area. And I was thrilled. It was a place that had a you know great reputation, hard to get into. I was stoked, but beyond that, I, I mean, I, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Talk to me about what life was like working at a hedge fund. Uh, what, what were your hours like? What was the culture like? What was expected of you? So the two things that stand out to me was, was one, the just the high standards. When you're in an environment with so many smart, capable people, if everyone's at 100% and you're not, you're, you're fighting a you're losing. You're, you're, you're Sisyphus. The boulder's going to crush you at any minute. You know, you're pushing it. And the, the second you stop trying 100%, it's going to come back and get you. And then the other was, you know, demanding environments often demand high hours. So I was working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week when things weren't too crazy. When things got crazy, it got up to 80 plus. And it, it was a lot. And there were many periods of time where I would work, I'd go home, I'd sleep, you know, I'd wake up, go to work again. And that was the week until the weekend. And how was that? So, what was that experience like to just work, sleep, work, sleep? If all you do is work and sleep and your work is awesome and you love your day and you love what you do and it's a good fit for your strengths and weaknesses, then you're going to be having a good time and it, it's just going to be an awesome experience. But anything less than that, there's going to, you're just exposed to a lot of friction. Like, wow. You know, you start asking questions like I'm working a lot and, and what, what am I doing this for exactly? Like is is this what I want to do for my whole career? Does this make sense? So it's it's a bit of a dichotomy. And for myself, I definitely found myself more on the latter end of, you know, I'm learning a lot and I'm growing a lot as a person, but I was curious, is this how I want to be spending the rest of my life? Is this work meaningful to me? Is this the best use of my talents? Because um, obviously I, I have my strengths, but I also have my weaknesses too. And some core elements of my job did not play to my strengths. So that, you know, was very stressful to me because I, I felt like I had a work 110% just, just to do the, you know, the expectation of my job, not even the exceeding expectations. After a while, a couple of years of that, how, how did you feel it um, kind of wear you down after a bit? After, you know, the two year mark, it was becoming pretty clear that not only did I not find like the work particularly meaningful and, and you know, that's very personal, like what work is meaningful and what isn't. And I, I don't even think I could give a good answer. It's just that I could just sense from like a, you know, very intuitive level that when I got out of bed, it's like I wasn't excited. You know, I wasn't like seize the day. It was more like, yikes, I can't I only have to do two more days until the weekend, you know, like and and that's a very draining place to be. And then the other was skills. 
um, just from seeing, you know, some of my friends and just listening to other people talk about their own careers. And I even saw it in the workplace. Some people were built for what they did. Like, imagine like a, like a wheel on a car, you know, like some people were really a circular wheel on a car. Like that's how effortless they were at their job. Like it was, you know, they were leveraging their strengths. They could gloss over their weaknesses. I felt like I was like a square wheel on a car, you know, like, I, I you know, the car could move but it wasn't efficient, it wasn't, you know, perfect, and it wasn't gonna, you know, the car was gonna stop at some point because the square wheel isn't working. So yeah, that, that those two factors really started to wear and wear on me over time, and after two years, it, it hit a breaking point. So yeah. I knew something had to change. You said you reached a tipping point. What what happened then? Yeah, so th- at that point in time, after, you know, two years, these this constant pressure building up internally of like, constantly asking myself, is this worth it? You know, I'm not necessarily super excited to go into work. Um, you know, and it's never really convenient to answer those questions, but without going into too much detail, there came to like a bit of a tipping point where I felt like there was one event where things transpired and I was like, you know, like it, this is not worth it anymore. It was like one particular incident. And I was like, where I like knew it's like, I'm not going to leave now, but like, I'm inevitably going to leave very soon. So it got to a point, you know, a few months later where there's a great time for both of us to move on. And I took that chance just because like, at that point, you know, I was, it was no longer, you, you just know intuitively where it's like, you know, where you just can't do it anymore. I guess like a relationship would be a good equivalent, you know, it's very hard to quantify that. Like, you know, like when you know, if you think you're going to keep dating someone or it's time to break up, but all you know is that things aren't going great. Um, and at, at some point, you know, you just reach that tipping point. And usually it's what I will say is the event that caused me where I decided, you know, like this is, I'm, you know, I'm leaving as soon as I can. That was not like a super horrible event in itself. It's kind of like I was already at a nine out of 10 and that just contributed mm-hmm. one out of yeah. 10 to put me at the 10 out of 10. It's interesting the way, the way you talk about your experience which is not really an anger with your previous employer, um, but rather you saying it just wasn't for me. This I, I wasn't asking my employer to change. I just realized that my short life would be better spent elsewhere. Do I do I have that right? You're a hundred and ten percent right. That that's it. And I couldn't have told you this, you know, the day after I left my first, my job. But you know, there's there's the most important puzzle piece in in your life is yourself i mean at any experience like you play a role in all your experiences so it's hard to address those quickly and and i man i wish at the time i could i could have easily diagnosed you know processed quickly like what i was going through and why it was happening but i really knew that you know there there's something fundamentally wrong with how i was living my life and and all that and i didn't figure that out overnight and in fact it took a year or two to even get like a decent grasp over what was actually going on. But yeah, no, I, I did not blame this on like my employer at all. In fact, I, I know many of my peers at, at the company in similar jobs who, who are doing great um, and, and they are still there and I'm sure they will continue to be there for a while. It, it really is me. It was me centric. Yeah, that's yeah. how I view it. How does your life feel different now than it did when you were working those 60, 80 hour, hours per week job? And, and that's a very good question. Um, I really do think I had two big problems, personal problems that I needed to solve that were affecting just kind of my long-term growth. And losing, and this transition to get from where I was working the 60 to 70, 80 hour week at that job to where I am now, I really had to you know, address two things to kind of you know, set myself up for success. And the first one is, you know, having more ownership in what I do. Out of college, I, I go back and said, when I said, like, I got a job just for the sake of getting a job, you know, I picked something that looked attractive, kind of seemed like it would be a good fit. But I was not into intellect- I was not very, like, self-aware almost about what are my strengths and weaknesses? And, like, what am I good at? What am I bad at? And what would be a good fit for me? Like, what's something I could... That seems like a really honest fit for who I am and how I want to spend my time. Now I have a much better understanding of that. And that allows me to make, you know, much more educated decisions. And the other is just gratitude. 
having gone through what I went through, like I know that I was deeply aware having been like fully super employed to super unemployed for long periods of time, having a regular paycheck is a blessing. Having a very competitive environment that forces you to grow is a blessing. When you're busy and overwhelmed, it's hard to really feel that. So I'd say, you know, just having a better outlook and appreciation for what it means to be employed and work for someone else. And just to be grateful for where I am in life. This gratitude, I guess the big change to answer it in short between now and two years ago when I left is just huge changes in the level of ownership to like how I spend my time and also just gratitude. For those that are listening and thinking of maybe I'm, maybe I'm done with where I work. Um, They've heard you kind of take a radical change. Is it something that you would suggest to other people? Ooh, that's a really good question. What I would say to anyone who's thinking in that position is, you know, be honest with yourself. When you're, and I'm again speaking just entirely from my experience, a burnout is something anyone can experience, but the root cause to that burnout can vary so, so greatly. So, the advice I'd give to anyone in those shoes, just because it's a question, once you decide to leave that, you know, the job that's causing the burnout in the first place, you're going to have to directly go answer and find the root cause of your distress and discomfort and solve them. Or if not, it's just going to happen again. So dedicating time periodically while you still have the stability of, of the job and the routine. And I know it can be hard, especially like me, you were working those 80 plus hour weeks, just any time, even if it's just 15 minutes a day, try to think about, you know, what you need out of your life and versus what you're currently getting and try to figure out exactly what it, what the problem is. Granted from my own experience, I will say it is hard in, in the time I took out leaving my job i saw friends you know finish one two years of med school or friends get promoted people thriving well i felt stagnant and it's a very painful feeling when you take yourself out of that environment completely not to say that there aren't good reasons to do it there are like if you feel like you're like me like your mental health and physical health are declining to such a point that that is a priority over whatever you do on a day-to-day -day basis that's a, I'd say that's a good reason, you know, to take that hard pause, but you know, just not neglecting problems for me. One of them was the big problem for me over the last two years that I solved was ownership. That was really at the root. Like I needed to own up to what I was doing and I needed to be more appreciative of the opportunities, uh, because there's, you know, your own intuition and your own experience doesn't lie. Like you are who you are and just trying to get a better picture of, you know, that so that you can actually do something about it is, is really what's going to jumpstart any resolution to a burnout or any positive next steps going forward. I've been chatting here with Sebastian Cruz, a former hedge fund employee who made some pretty big changes and uh, left his job and has been creating a new, a new life, a new work for himself. Sebastian, thanks for joining us and sharing a bit of your story. We appreciate it. Thank you, John, for having me. Pleasure to talk. Well, that's all the time we got for this week. Our producer on Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And if you've been enjoying this conversation and others, please leave a review and a rating. Let us know what you think. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon.